We turn to Exodus 36 in God's Word. As we continue our way through the book of Exodus, chapter 36, reading the entirety of that chapter. God's holy and inspired word given to us as people. Give your attention to the reading of it, Exodus 36. God's word. Bezael and Oholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord had put skill and intelligent to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezael and Oholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning, so that all of the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing. For the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. They were made of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns with cherubim skillfully worked. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits and the breadth of each uh, curtain was four cubits. All the curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains to one another and the other five curtains he coupled to one another. He made loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, he made them on the edge of the outermost curtain of the second set. He made 50 loops on one curtain, and he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that was in the second set. The loops were opposite one of another. And he made 50 clasps of gold and coupled the curtains one to another with clasps. So the tabernacle was a single whole. He also made curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. He made 11 curtains. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain 4 cubits. The 11 curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves, and he made 50 loops on the edge of the outermost curtain of the one set and 50 loops on the edge of the other connecting curtain. And he made 50 clasps of bronze to couple the tent together that it might be a single whole. And he made for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and goat skins. And he made the upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits was the length of the frame and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. Each frame had ten tenons for fitting together. He did this for all the frames of the tabernacle. The frames for the tabernacle he made thus. Twenty frames for the south side and he made forty bases of silver under the twenty frames. Two bases under one frame for its two tenons. And two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. For the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, he made 20 frames and there 40 bases and two bases under one frame and two bases under the next frame. For the rear of the tabernacle, he made six frames. He made two frames for the corner of the tabernacle in the rear. They were separate beneath but joined at the top at the first ring. 
He made two of them this way for the two corners. There were eight frames with their bases of silver, sixteen bases under every frame, two bases. He made bars of acacia wood, five for the frames on one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the tabernacle at the rear westward. And he made the middle bar to run from end to end, halfway up the frames. And he overlaid the frames with gold, and made the rings of gold for holders for the bars, and overlaid the bars with gold. He made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, with cherubim's Cherubim skillfully worked into it, he made it. For he made, for it he made four pillars of acacia and overlaid them with gold. Their hooks were of gold and he cast for them four bases of silver. He also made a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yards and fine twine linen, embroidered with needlework. And its five pillars with their hooks, he overlaid their capitals and their fillets were of gold but their five bases were of bronze. As far as the reading of God's word, may bless it. So within the ancient world of Israel, a fundamental distinction held across the various cultures and peoples. And this was the separation between heaven and earth. Now these two realms may have may have parallels with each other. There was a certain form of communication between them, but they were still separate and distinct. The heavens were holy and everlasting, while the earth was corrupt and ever in the grasp of death. And this instilled in ancient humanity the drive and quest to reach the heavens, to ascend on high. Thus, the only place of contact between earth and heaven were the temples or holy shrines. For example, there was a towering ziggurat, a temple at Nippur, called the Bond of Earth and Heaven. Babylon had a temple called the house that is the foundation of heaven and earth. By their mountain temples, high above the plain, ancient man was going to storm heaven for its divine benefits. Now, this may seem foreign to us, but modern man has hardly ceased its attempts to conquer heaven. Indeed, modernity and post-modernity just declared dead God, text, and meaning. And with God dead, humanity can send rockets to the stars to become the gods we were meant to be. Well, scripture very much holds to this separation between heaven and earth, between the holy and the common. And yet the solution to bridge the gap is wholly unique to scripture and the best news for us. So in the previous chapter, the Lord called for donations. He summoned the people to give freely from the heart all the materials in order to build the tabernacle. And Israel responded above and beyond. Their sincere generosity poured in. Though the people's free offerings were not just things, you could also donate your skill, time, and labors. Therefore, all the wise of heart, men and women, stepped up to devote their elbow grease. And to lead them were the two divinely inspired master craftsmen, Bezael and Oholiab. They were the spirit filled, they were spirit filled with wisdom to sew, to blacksmith, and to fabricate. Well, the donations have been given, so it's time for the work to begin. Moses rings the start bell for Bezael, Oliab, and all the wise workers. 
and all the wise of heart line up ready to give their skills and efforts to the Lord. Moses then officially transfers the precious materials to them so as to preserve the chain of evidence. Proper accounting records cannot be overlooked. Then the construction commences. Forges burn hot, looms start up, and there's a flurry of dying, spinning, swinging, and hammering. As it's stressed here, it all uh, steps to the beat of wisdom. Every cut, measurement, and swing is performed with wisdom. Repeated five times in the first eight verses, all the workers were wise. This is the next essential ingredient to the tabernacle, wisdom. The Emmanuel reality of God dwelling with his people, this most sweet covenant communion and fellowship can only be manufactured with wisdom. Without exacting expertise and craftsmanship of wisdom, there is no tabernacle. This is another reason for all the detailed repetition. As the various parts of the tabernacle are made here, we get nearly a Xerox copy of the previous instructions. In fact, Exodus 36 repeats word for word, with minor variations, Exodus chapter 26. Now, why recite again all the descriptions of these fabrics and frames? Well, for one, to show wisdom. In the minutia, the fine dexterity of wisdom glows. The elaborate blueprint given to Moses on top of Sinai becomes real objects in history on earth. Wisdom fashions the heavenly pictures into an earthly reality. And this brings us to the second essential theme of the text. In verse 1, the workers made everything as the Lord commanded. Verse 5, the work carried on as the Lord commanded. In Exodus chapter 26, the Lord said, you shall make, and then all the details. And here with the same words, it says, they made, and then all the details. This is the necessity of obedience. And the tabernacle must align exactly with God's design for it to work. If the tent varies from the blueprint, Emmanuel will not come to be. Either God will descend into his incorrect house, and or he will not descend into his incorrect house, or he will enter and then burst out in fury to destroy. Thus the people's lives, the covenant communion of the tabernacle, depends upon the precise obedience of the construction. Therefore, the word-for-word repetition is public quality control. It's public transparency to keep the workers on task. It's to allow the public to look over their shoulder to get it right. If Exodus 36 didn't repeat Exodus 26, we would not have the confidence that the work was done right. And it's these two themes, wisdom and obedience, that are essential to the tabernacle blessing. Emmanuel rests upon the foundation of wise obedience. God's presence with us is sustained safely by skilled righteousness, and neither is sufficient by itself. An untrained obedience cannot meet the high standard of craftsmanship. 
while careless wisdom or creative excellence fail to follow the blueprints. Indeed, no imagination or creativity is allowed here, but only conformity to the heavenly blueprint. Without righteous wisdom, the Lord cannot dwell with his covenant people. And this is true for us today as it was at the foot of Sinai. And to drive home this most important truth, all these details are repeated word for word. What we find boring is actually an invaluable exercise of the Lord in order to prove our fitness in wise obedience. And yet as soon as the workers get going, they hit a speed bump. They have to slam on the brakes at an interruption. Every morning, the people still bring more donations. They won't stop giving, and soon it's too much. The, cr- the clutter crowds the workers from doing their job. And so they have to stop and tell Moses, the people bring too much. We have more than we need. It's kind of a good problem. And thus now Moses issues a, a camp-wide proclamation, no more. Man and woman shall donate no more. Now this is practical, but if you think about it, it reveals a wonderful truth about our Lord. Most earthly kings have an insatiable appetite for their people's wealth. They'll never stop taking. Kings will just keep building luxurious mansions while the rest of their people live in shacks. But not so with Yahweh. He receives what is needed, and he leaves the rest for the people. His building of the tabernacle did not impoverish the people. Unlike an earthly king, the Lord actually has claim to everything we have, even our own selves, but he does not exercise it. Instead, the Lord preserves the common realm of personal property. He closes the time for donations, and the people get to keep the rest of their possessions. And with this, work begins and products start coming off the manufacturing line. And first up is the tabernacle layer of curtains. Now, you'll recall that the sanctuary is made of four layers of curtains. And the first innermost layer, the most holy one, is called the tabernacle layer. Yes, tabernacle can refer to the whole sanctuary, but it can have a technical use for the most sacred layer of curtains, as it's used here and described for us in verses 8 through 13. Now, it consists of ten curtains joined into two sets of five and then linked together as a whole. This whole layer measures 28 cubits by 40 cubits, or or 42 feet by 60 feet, roughly. Moreover, the curtains are made from twisted linen, dyed wools of purple, blue, and scarlet, and they are embroidered with cherubim all over the curtains. And this most holy design is crucial as it pictures heaven. These are the colors and servants of God in his heavenly throne room. Hence, we come to how the Bible solution to the heaven and earth separation differs from the nations. The pagan neighbors, by and large, sought to storm heaven by climbing up. This was demonstrated at Babel 
The people assembled on the plain of Shinar to build a ziggurat up to heaven to be famous like a god. Well, the Lord scattered their hubris to show that this is not possible for humans. And yet for Israel, within this covenant, the Lord descends to his people. He came down on Sinai, and now he recreates a slice of heaven on earth to house his presence. In the royal colors of blue, pearl, purple, and scarlet, by the embroidered cherubim, this layer creates 360 square cubits of heaven on earth. Israel does not have to scale the walls of heaven For the Lord has come down to them with a patch of heaven. But this is only the first layer. The second layer is made in verses 14 through 18, which is called the tent. The tabernacle layer is covered by the second, the tent layer. Now this layer is made from black goat's wool. And it's slightly bigger as it's made from 11 curtains and measures 30 cubits by 44 cubits or 45 feet by 66 feet. And the darkness of this layer blocks out the heavenly layer. It represents the truth that the Lord dwells in darkness. In Exodus 20, Moses approached the thick darkness where God was, it says. Solomon saying that the Lord chose to abide in thick blackness. And Psalm 97 that we just sung praises the Lord that black clouds are around him. The black wool displays this truth in architecture. The Lord is enthroned in thick, dark clouds. And this dark layer conceals, it hides It teaches us that as much as the Lord reveals himself, there's always more of him kept secret. His infinite, mysterious glory is shrouded in black that no eye can penetrate. Yet this layer is a, this layer of concealment is also for our protection. It both keeps us out and God in. For the holiness of God cannot easily dwell upon this impure earth and among sinful people. When the sacred, or when heaven, comes into contact with what is impure, there's always an explosion. Either the holy departs, or the impure is consumed in flame. And so the black wool keeps God's holiness inside the room of heaven, and it keeps sinners out. The black wool is literally life-saving for the people, and it is Emmanuel preserving to keep God inside. Wise obedience spins black wool to preserve heaven on earth. But there's two more layers in verse 19. The third layer is ram leather tanned red. Now, we're not sure, but this red leather might echo the fire amid which God dwells. Fire danced upon thick darkness on the top of Sinai. And the fourth letter layer is literally beaded leather. That is, color beads were sewn into the leather, which were only, or which was the only layer seen from the outside. 
Now, we're not given the color of this outer layer. It's probably multicolored, but it maybe represents the color of the sky or clouds. Either way, this final fourth layer uh, uh, was to keep heaven separate from earth and sinners. It's the last barrier to keep the sinful eyes of human humans away from the inapproachable holiness of God and heaven inside the tent. God in heaven is dwelling among them, but they cannot approach, they cannot touch, and they cannot see. These layers then reveal how dangerous and precarious it is for God to come down to earth. It may be the greatest blessing, but it's a deadly one. Thus, later in number 17, the people will cry out in despair, We are perishing. All who draw near to the tabernacle die, they will say. Shall we all perish? This is the mysterious terror of Yahweh's holiness. It is the heart's desire, but it slays us as sinners. Hence the text repeats that all the layers were made perfectly in order to stabilize the lethal balance between the holy and the impure, between heaven and earth. Nevertheless, curtains need something to hang on, and so the wise workers next fabricate the wood frames and poles, verses 20 through 34. Now there is no overt symbolism or representation with the wood frames. Rather, they are whittled with obedience and skillfully overlaid with gold in order to align with holiness and to make Emmanuel possible. Holiness demands fastidiousness in each detail. If a single feature fails, the whole house falls. And the final two items made in our chapter are the veils. The most holy veil separates the holy of holies from the inner sanct or the sanctum, and now note that it it matches the most sacred f- uh, fabrics of blue, purples, and cherubim. Thus, verses thirty-five and thirty-six. This is the inner veil. Then there's the outer screen, the sanctum screen, verses thirty-seven and thirty-eight. Now this screen matches the inner one in color, blue, purple, and scarlet. Yet it lacks the embroidered cherubim and its weave is of a lesser quality. These differences communicate a lesser holiness than the most sacred inner veil. For this screen can be seen by the layperson. The eyes of the laity cannot land upon the cherubim, but as they stand at the altar, they can see the blues, purples, and scarlets of heaven's gate. Indeed, these two screens are doors, they are, but they are closed and locked doors. As doors, they create the possibility of entering heaven. Doors provide access. They are a way through the four-layered wall. In the tabernacle, Yahweh did not just bring his holy heaven down to on earth among his people, but he installed a door. God allowed a way inside. Doors are a type of invitation. Doors make you want to open them. But the screen of the sanctum was closed and locked. It read, do not enter, you shall not pass. 
With its beautiful purples and scarlets, the screen attracted and lured you you inside. But it was locked with a sword. To touch was to die. The sanctum screen was a a mysterious mixture of beauty and fear, of invitation and warning, of life and death. It called out with heaven's voice, and it chased you away with lethal holiness. The lock screen declared that there was a way in to God in heaven, but there was only one key. A single complex key was the only VIP VIP card for safe entrance. And what was this key? Well, there's a three-combination lock to this vault door. And the first combination was election. God had to choose you. He elected only Aaron and his sons. Indeed, the will of man was not a factor. Your desires or your piety mattered not. If you were a lay person of Judah, Zebulun, or Asher, you were forever forbidden access. Your righteousness could be pristine, but it was no help to open the screen for you unless you are of the chosen line. But why election? Well, this exposes the hubris of the human will that asserts that we can choose God. If our own will was a factor, this would deny the reality of our depravity, of our being dead in sin and captivated to only evil and sin. Besides, to volunteer for the honorable office of priest assumes a self-worth. I'm good enough. But this is not true. Thus, it was God's will who selects the people. Yahweh elects the one who will be his priest to pass through the door into the heavenlies. The next key is obedience. Aaron must righteously perform every technicality of the law to enter. If Aaron forgot to put on his hat that day, he died. If he messed up the recipe for holy incense, wrath would break out. Only by priestly righteousness could Aaron move inside. The holy screen opened only for the obedience of a priest. Finally, As a subset of obedience, the third combination to unlock the door was purity. Aaron had to be in an absolute state of purity. Now, sure, obedience was performed or required the purity washings, but purity was not so much about behavior, but about our natures. Purity scrubbed and covered the impurities that leaked from our bodies, particularly sexual fluids and death. Human reproduction and death express the curse of sin. They reveal our depraved and impure natures that bar us from heaven's holiness. Purity symbolically separated Aaron from his fallen nature as if he was like Adam before sin. And it's this three-combination key that opened the holy screen. Election, obedience, and purity. With these, the high priest could harmlessly enter heaven on earth 
and God's holiness safely stayed inside the tabernacle to keep the people alive. And from this threefold key, we get a deep dive into the work of our Savior. We witness our true high priest from Aaron who who foreshadowed him. First, the Father chose the Son with an everlasting oath before the foundation of the world according to the priesthood of Melchizedek. Sure, Christ freely and willingly gave himself to serve, but the honor of high priest was chosen by the Father first. Next, by his priestly obedience, Jesus sprinkled his own blood on the bronze altar, on the incense altar, and on the ark. Aaron sprinkled these within a heaven-on-earth replica, but by the Holy Spirit, Jesus ministered in the heaven of heavens, in the tabernacle above. And finally, Jesus had an unblemished purity as he was born of a virgin. From Mary, he took on our humanity, but without Adam as his dad, Jesus had no corrupt and depraved nature as do we. And being truly unblemished, Christ was able to take our sins and impurities upon himself and destroy them. Yes, as our high priest, Christ performed the full atonement in heaven so that we can live with God forever. And yet there's something here, or there's something more radical about Christ's work that is hardly conceived of here. By wise obedience, heaven is established among God's people. And by pure righteousness, Aaron preserved Emmanuel. But it was inconceivable that Aaron would ever take down the holy screen. Aaron had to pass through the locked door, but he had to keep the door shut to the people. Jesus, though, entered the holy place and then the holy of holies, And he ripped the veil in two. Jesus shredded the outer screen and the inner veil. If Aaron did this, holiness would have broken out like a plague of fire and turned the sinners to ash. God's holiness breaking out of the tabernacle was one of Israel's greatest fears as it meant their indiscriminate deaths. But Christ tore the veil and what broke out? Well, wrath did consume Jesus on the cross, but blessing broke out for us. Jesus ripped the veil and the spirit of adoption and redemption poured forth on us at Pentecost. Jesus released a spirit of holiness into your own heart in which there is no more condemnation and to make you into the true tabernacle of God. By his wise obedience, Jesus spiritually forms you into his heavenly dwelling. Therefore, the repeated beauty here showcases the beauty of your Savior and your high priest. It displays the beauty of new creation work in you, and it lifts up our eyes to the eternal beauty of heaven. In this way, by this chapter, grace transforms us into better worshipers, more filled with reverence and awe 
at God's surpassing holiness, more grateful for the intricate work of Christ, and more humble in love before the Lord. Indeed, here we learn how to worship God more and more from Lord's Day to Lord's Day and unto eternity, where we will then stand in the true heaven in the light of his face and hear God say, Truly God dwells with man, and it is finished. May the Lord hasten that day. Amen. Let us pray.